Good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Davis, and I have the honor and privilege of getting to serve as the campus pastor at our Henderson campus, just a few miles away from here. And so I'm excited to get to be here with you this morning and just wanted to kind of start off and share a few things. Uh, you probably noticed this contraption, uh, this device that I have to, this just stifling device that I have to wear. Um, I tore my pec about eight weeks ago, and yes, it was miserable and painful. And so uh, this is to keep me from doing this which I like to do a lot. And so it's just simply as a reminder, and I pray that's not a distraction for you this morning too. But I just kind of wanted to tell you a little bit about Henderson, about myself. Uh, my wife, Lauren, here is with me. We've been married for 16 years. I know uh, she's really lucky. And so we have two kids. We have a 13-year-old son named Brooks. Uh, he's in seventh grade. And we have a 10-year-old daughter named Elise. They are back in Henderson, actually serving in Bethel Kids here this morning. And so Lauren and I, like, we, get, we have the whole day in Tyler. Like, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to have some fun. So, uh, no, thank y'all. I was really honored when Eric invited me and asked me. And then I realized, well, Ricky was busy and Ross was busy and Chad couldn't. So fourth string is not bad. I mean, that's still pretty good. Uh, but I'm honored to get to be here with you. Henderson Campus, we, we're four years old, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, because we launched in January of 2020. And so we all kind of know that was a little bit of a crazy time, just a few months. So we launched in January of 2020, and I'll never forget, I mean, it, it, we were growing like gangbusters. And since then, it has been craziness. We have moved almost, what, three times. Uh, we now have a permanent building. We have a permanent structure. So we were able to acquire uh, seven acres and a 30,000 square foot building from Eastside Baptist Church in Henderson. We just recently moved in. We've made some minor tweaks and renovations to kind of make the space ours. And so some amazing things are happening. But as I was reading and studying and really preparing for this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I couldn't help but think about this journey that, that God had for the Henderson campus. When we closed before the shutdown, when we had our final service before the shutdown, we had 312 people in attendance that Sunday. It was awesome. I mean, a church that's only, what, a couple months old. Now, when we reopened the church, just a few months later, when we had to reopen, we had 161 people in attendance. Like, what happened? And I, and I have to tell you, just from a leadership perspective, I mean, we were spinning our wheels because during that shutdown, we, we visited with families as best we could. We came to the foundry and had little coffee bags made and wrote a note and dropped it on every person's doorstep. And we did drive-through children ministry events. And we did a drive-through movie night. We prayed with people through the glass of the hospital. We did as much as we could to stay intimately engaged and involved in people's life. And so the leadership is going, what, what happened? How did we lose half our congregation? So as I began to really study and dig into what Paul's talking about to this fractured church in Corinth, it became evident. See, what began to happen is that all of our desires, all of our preferences became priority. 
that what we wanted, and we got into this routine that was outside of God's will and God's structure, and it became about us. And we lost the central purpose, this calling. And as I'm looking at Paul writing to this Corinthian church, which is around four and five years old, it was hard not to evaluate the Henderson campus also. Because what controlled the Corinthian culture, their entire lives were centered around this plausibility structure that that ordered their entire lives around individualism. It was around self. It was the elevation of self and personal gain and wisdom and knowledge. and, And it controlled every facet within the culture. And what happened? It began to seep its way into the church and fractured it. I think if we just kind of survey the landscape of the Western church today, I think we can say we've all experienced this in some facet. And you look at this church in Corinth who's four, five, maybe six years old, some argue, and you would think by now that they would have been governed by spiritual thinking, that they would have understood all that God has revealed to them in the scriptures in such a a profound way that it would have controlled their thoughts, their actions, their attitudes, their worship, you would have thought they would be completely controlled by the gospel. But instead, they were still operating by the natural philosophy of the world around them. So Paul just simply in this loving way begins to shepherd and rebuke them and steward them back to truth. And just says, look, you you need the reminder of the gospel that you've forgotten that the gospel is about what God does and not what you do. That you are spiritual because God gave you the Holy Spirit. He's been reminding them now for two chapters that the cross is the ultimate power of God's wisdom and glory. That the gospel is is not in addition to our lives. It's not just something we add on to our lives, that the gospel is in exchange for our life. And that should change everything about us. And that's what Paul's going to double down here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so today we've divided this into three sections, if you will. So we're going to see Paul addressing the concerns for spiritual maturity in verses 1 through 8. He's then going to talk about the materials that you have in this spiritual growth, in this journey, in this life, this new calling that you have, the materials that you've been given for growth in verses 9 through 15. And then finally, he's going to talk about the application. He's going to give you the methods, the methods for which to apply in verses 16 through 23. So before we dive into the text, would you join me as we just go to Father one more time in prayer here this morning to prepare our hearts? God, thank you. Thank you for your truth, your your revealed will. God, we, we get to be here today. Like we get to do this. We get to open up your word. We get to see your character and, and your nature and your love. And we know and trust that it never returns void. So my prayer, Father, is you just get me out of the way this morning. Shape my words that they just be pleasing upon you, that all they do is shed light into the foundation of truth, into Jesus Christ. That that alone has the 
power to save, the power to transform, and what it now calls us into. So I thank you. I thank you for your bride and your church that you loved so much that you died for. So, Father, I just pray this morning we just simply worship. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, you can go ahead, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to start off with this spiritual maturity in verses 1 through 3. And Paul just starts off and he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk with not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Ouch, right? If we go back and we just kind of look at what's led us to this point in these first couple of chapters as we talk about the Corinthians were looking for this expression of Christianity that would, that would serve them in their aspirational pursuits, that would elevate them. In fact, in chapter 2, what Paul really did, what Eric taught on last week, was that Paul just really categorized the culture into two parts. He said you have the spiritual person and you have the natural person. And he said the natural person, it cannot accept, it cannot embrace, which translates it cannot welcome. Think of the warm embrace when you finally see your family after not seeing them for an extended period of time. That type of welcome that it cannot welcome, that the natural person cannot welcome them because they get hung up on the fact that our Lord and Savior had to be crucified for them. Think about the Jews. The Jews saw crucifixion as a curse by God. In Deuteronomy 21, that a man that would be left hanging would be cursed by God. To the Greeks, they saw crucifixion as only reserved for the lowest in society. And there was no way that this Messiah, no way that this conquering king would ever endure that type of death. So they did not welcome, they did not embrace this truth. And then Paul kind of said there's the other side of the coin and that was the spiritual person. And so really, what's the spiritual person? Very simply, someone who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. It's really as simple as that. That not only because they're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and God dwells within them, that they're now capable of this evaluation, this gospel-driven, Christ-centered, biblically appropriate evaluation in my life and in the world around us. That as children are, are no longer enslaved to the judgment of the natural man of the world around them, that they are now called to a higher standard the Lord of Lords, the creator of all is now their standard. And in chapter two, what's the result of that? What's the byproduct of all of that? He he ends chapter two and he says, you've been gifted the mind of Christ. The spiritual person has been given the thoughts of Christ, the mind of Christ. And now what Paul does here in this particular section is he takes that natural person and that spiritual person and he sort of subsets the spiritual person. He says, hey, there's a spiritual immaturity within this church that needs to be rebuked. 
that needs to be called out. It's this third category. He says, yes, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, but the fruit of your life looks just like that of the natural person. That our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, the things that our preferences, all of those things, there's no distinction between you and the natural person in the world around you. That it's rooted in this selfishness. Notice in those first three verses, Paul uses the phrase of the flesh, sarcos or sarks, it's fleshy. In that phrase, it represents the root of the problem here in Corinth. That yes, they're, in sa- they're saved, they're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, but their motives, actions, thoughts, their entire worship, their entire lives was focused solely upon themselves. And the gift that you have the mind of Christ, that fruit was not evident. Someone who is still fleshy or carnal after he has become possessed by the Holy Spirit, someone who is still operating and thinking like a natural man. You have those same distinctions, those same divisions in Romans chapter 8 where Paul uh, speaks about those who who are no longer of the flesh. And he just says they are saved, but they walk according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. And Paul uses the same terminology here that what's driving you? What's transforming you? What's, what's shaping you? Look, the reality is, I mean, each one of us woke up this morning with the battle and with this tension. And this tension between the world and Christ I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, I thought that the old man drowned in the waters of my baptism, but I discovered the miserable wretch can swim. <laughs> like a deep spiritual walk with God, it, it does not happen immediately. Boy, I wish it did, Right? And we know this sanctification that Paul's been talking about now for two chapters, that it's time, that it's little by little that he's swiping and chiseling all the junk into in my life to conform me and make me more and more to the image of his son. And when the Holy Spirit in, invades the enemy territory of our lives and, and sets up Jesus Christ as king in the capital city of our hearts, his strategy for for conquering all of those rebel forces of the flesh that that keep up their guerrilla warfare, right? For his strategy for conquering that is different for each person. But here's the thing, it's all rooted in what he's gonna talk about in the foundation of this gospel. That the gospel isn't just something tacked onto our life, that it's in exchange for our life. And he gives the call right there in verse three, behaving in a human way. The idea here is our walk. You're either walking in the ways of the world or you're walking in the ways of our Lord and Savior. That there's only two distinctions there. And we go back and we really look at this and we really begin to examine this. We can go back all the way into the garden and we can see God's creation, that God's design. Humans were not meant to function and to live by our own reason or by our own experience, by our own logic. Humans were created as totally dependent beings. That in the garden, Adam and Eve had everything at their disposal. They had paradise. 
And yet they were created to be solely dependent upon the Lord. That's this idea of walk that Paul is referring to, that it's designed to happen in full submission to the God who is the God of all wisdom and the God of all insight and the God of all knowledge and truth. And Paul uses this illustration here and he talks about being infants and he's saying, you know, he used milk and, and solid food, but he's not drawing a distinction in, in context and content because the content doesn't actually change. He's talking about the foundation. He's talking all about this perfect gospel that this imperfect church needs to be reminded time and time and time again. He's saying, look, I gave you exactly what you needed when you were an infant. And I continue to give you that day by day by day because you need this reminder. Because this is what's going to grow you into the spiritual maturity. And it begs the question, so what changed? I mean, this church by now, four or five, some argue, six years old, you would think there would be some fruit evident in your lives, that there would be some sort of capacity within their life to live this out, to demonstrate this fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So what changed? The perception of the gospel. They clung to the plausibility structure of the world around them and not to the hope life that they have now found in Christ. That there's nothing more precious, nothing more needed, nothing more powerful, nothing more essential, nothing that should be more central in our lives than the hope and life and security of a crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in that alone that has the power to pull us away from our selfishness and our preferences and leads us into maturity. That the gospel that he keeps repeating over and over and over, that that becomes the most prized possession in my life. The lens that I now see the world, that it's transforming us, that it's shaping us, that it's changing our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes and our feelings. Because when we walk, when we are fully surrendered to the spirit of God, you begin to think like God. You begin to feel what God feels. You you begin to do what what God would do. Paul's saying this is how you grow in this spiritual maturity. And how do we know they're not growing? Because look at the, the way that Paul describes their life. He says, listen, jealousy and strife control you. That you're dying on a hill of preferences and it's fracturing the church. And if we really just kind of pause and if we just take a step back from this and we just evaluate our own lives, we can, we can survey the landscape of five campuses trying to be one church. And we can see all that, that our preferences sometimes can elevate us in our style of worship or our, our style of teaching. And all of those things can rob us. And if we're not careful, it can begin to fracture the church. Thomas Rayner is a church consultant and president of Lifeway Resources for years. And I love this because he went on Twitter and it was years ago, but he asked this. He said he wanted people to share some horror stories of churches that have fought and been divided and ultimately split. He wanted to hear some stories. And I just wanted to read you two really quick ones because I thought these were kind of funny. One church argued and actually split over the appropriate length of the pastor's beard. Like, y'all, Mark Kirkendall would not survive, right? Like, let's just, 
Okay, here's the second one. And this one stumped me all week, okay? One church fought over whether or not to install, I'm going to read this correctly, I hope so, restroom stall dividers in the women's bathroom. A church split over, I don't know if you heard me or not. Okay, a church split over whether or not to install dividers in a women's. This stumped me all week. Like, why? Was it a barrier to community? I mean, wait a minute, there you go. And like, you all go together. Like, I don't know. What was the reasoning for this? It's because their preferences were robbing them of this growth and maturity. It was leading to jealousy and strife. That's the core here. That's the core. It's the the elevation of self, right? Of what I want and what I think is best. It's insisting that our way is the way that we should go. And Paul's just saying, hey, that's spiritual immaturity. And this is what we have to constantly always evaluate and and fight against as we're five campuses that are, are, that's one church. And Paul just simply calls back, hey, look, the lack of Christ, the lack of Christ-centeredness, the lack of the gospel in our lives is what's dividing us. That's the root of the problem. And that's what he begins to unpack and undress. He's going to begin to give them some more things. Look at verses four through eight. And he says, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, there's a lot of argument uh, in the commentaries, if you read, and we even kind of talked about this in our teaching team meeting with all the campuses. I mean, is Paul really addressing the leaders, the pastor, shepherd, teacher, elders of the church, or is he addressing the congregation? And the answer is yes. The saints the brothers and sisters, those called in Christ, that you all have a job to do, that we're all just servants, as Paul uses this farming illustration. But see, our tendency, though, and the tendency within this church is to turn servants into saviors. That I follow Ricky, I follow Eric, and I follow Ross, or I follow Clint. No one really follows Jacob, so we don't have to worry about that. But, right, I follow these guys. And it can create divisions and disunity and, and factions and all of these things. And what begin to happen is we can attach ourselves and we can vicariously boast through these teachers. And Paul's saying, no, no. Look, the Corinthian culture was centered on competition and striving for power, fame, and prestige. And the way that Paul knocks the props out from under this boasting is to compare the work of Apollos and the work of Paul to farmers, to farm slaves, if we want to get technical. That one's planting, and that's Paul, and the other one waters, and that's Apollos. And two of the greatest words that are always in Scripture, but God. But God is the one 
who gives the increase. So God should be the one we boast about, not men. Because compared to the the greatness of God's work, like ours is nothing. Let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Because Paul says we are all just migrant workers through whom you've believed. That's all these teachers are. They are just the mailmen. They're just the one delivering this message of hope and life. I mean, think about it. You ever walk up to your mailman and take a picture of them and then post it on your Instagram with fire emojis that what they said and did was so amazing today. No, we don't do that. But Paul's saying, hey, that's all these teachers are. And this is, this is a... This is something we have to constantly evaluate, I think, in our culture, in our society today, because I, we just have to pause. I mean, just think about this morning. We're here in a beautiful, awesome auditorium. I've got a microphone on. There are lights. We just heard some unbelievable worship, a brass section. I mean, a French horn, right? How awesome was that? My wife used to play the French horn, and she walked in and was like, I don't think we're coming here every week now. I mean, this is awesome. I mean, but so just think about this. I mean, when's the only other time in the world something like this is happening? It's at a concert, right? When you have a performer that's on the stage that's performing to gain fame. You have people in an audience that are looking to be entertained, that are looking to be satisfied. And if they leave unsatisfied, they may never choose to come back again. If we're not careful, our tendency is to bring that into the church. Because the danger is I, I, I could use this stage to build a platform and you could use God's church to make sure life is as enjoyable and as, as comfortable as possible. But that's not the mission. In fact, Paul is calling that spiritual immaturity. And he's telling them, recognize this that we're here for his exaltation and not ours and not mine, that we're here for his glory and not our comfort, that the teachers were just the means and not the cause. And all the personal preferences, they're robbing this church of their calling and it can rob us. And I, we had to do this with the elders at, at our Henderson campus as we were just spinning our wheels coming out of that COVID season. And, and why did we just lose half of our congregation? Where did they go? What happened? I mean, we stayed in communication. We, we stayed in contact. And I'll never forget one of our elders. He just stopped and he said, hey, we just have to ask for a moment. Like, if God were to just evaluate what we're doing, what would he say? Would he go 75 minutes on a Sunday? Some teaching and some preaching, lunch and a nap, nailed it. That's exactly. Or what do you say? How did we get here? What happened? For the Corinthian church, they had to evaluate and recognize are they hitting the mark of this mission that God's calling them to? Bethel Bible Church, are we hitting the mission that God has called us to? Are we growing? Are we maturing slowly, but are we maturing day by day to more and more into the image and likeness of Christ? And simply what we have to evaluate is what effect does the gospel have on our life? 
is it our most prized possession? Because that's spiritual maturity. The second thing Paul is going to begin to dive into is the materials that you have at your disposal. And so he starts that in verse 9. He just says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What's the remedy to all of the factions? What's the remedy to all the divisions and the, the disruption, the dismay, all of the things that are happening? Paul says it three times and he puts the distinction every time in front. He says, God. God's workers, it's God's field, it's God's building. It's God's building. It's Ephesians 2, 21 through 22, that it grows you into a temple unto the Lord in whom you are also built into the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That this gathering of the saints is where we minister according to our gifts, being transformed and changed brick by brick, that we're being shaped and fashioned and chiseled off little by little until the whole temple grows into the manifestation of the wholeness of God. And that's how the church functions. That We become more and more and more like Christ. We become wholesome. We become healed. We become a loving community that has learned to operate and live together in forgiveness and compassion and love and, and mercy. That's exactly how we just started the service is we just, we partook in a remembrance and a celebration of that, that we are now called in this together. In fact, if we took that and we are not in one accord, if there is strife and disunity among us, we just committed sin. Constantly, this call is back to this unity of the gospel that what unites us is far greater than anything that could ever divide us. It was the work of Christ. That it was God. It was God's field. It was God's workers. It was God's building because that's where he dwells. He continues in verses 10 and 11. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I love this. What Paul's saying is like everything that's been happening, everything that's going on up until this moment is a demonstration of God's grace. Just think about Paul sitting in Ephesus as he's writing this letter, the fact that Saul, the man who was killing and persecuting Christians, is now the one God is using to encourage, to admonish, to build up this fractured church. That's nothing short than this gift that Paul has talked about now for three chapters, the grace of God. This foundation that he lays and he points back to, it's Jesus. This is what we're building upon, this gift of grace. It's the cross of Christ. And what was happening within the Corinthian churches, they were building upon everything else. In fact, he's saying right here, these materials that they were using, they were using grief, jealousy, and strife to build upon something that God had already redeemed and restored all of that. He talks about grief. Grief, this lack of peace. 
And he goes back to the foundation, Jesus Christ. You, you have salvation. See, salvation wasn't our, our greatest need. Salvation brought us our greatest need, and that's peace with God. Pulled us out of this grief that we have because of that foundation. Jealousy. Jealousy is self-focused, right? I've got to get mine. It's all about me. You want to take for yourself that foundation. Jesus Christ, he gave himself up for you. And strife, you see, strife is always tearing others down to build yourself up. But this foundation, the cross, is where Christ humbled himself to elevate us to God. And this is this gift that Paul is talking about, this gift of grace. So do we recognize that in our lives? Do we have this full realization of the grace that has been given us? Do we truly bask in the glory of God? Reminding ourselves moment by moment, day by day that he has saved us. Paul knows this Corinthian church needs this reminder. God knows we need this reminder time and time again. Grace given to you, the foundation of that walk, Jesus Christ. He's going to continue in verses 12 through 14 to talk about in detail some of these materials. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test that sort of work and each one is done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive an award. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as fire. We could spend like, how much time we got? We, right? I was making sure y'all awaken with me. Like, wow. He's talking about these materials that they're using. So just imagine, I want you to think about, I mean, we can kind of place ourselves in that Corinthian church and just think about it. In 146 BC, Corinth was burned to the ground. Decades later, centuries later, however we want to look at it, Julius Caesar comes, rebuilds Corinth back in this with Roman architecture and all these brand new buildings. And so you can imagine this church as they're reading this illustration that Paul is looking and they survey all of the buildings and they see the materials of what was once Corinth and now being rebuilt. And they know what materials are going to burn and what materials will last. And Paul says right here, all of these various building materials are going to be tested for strength. They're going to be tested for endurance and longevity, that they will become manifest. It's the word apocalypto. It's re revelation is coming. Paul is talking about what is known as the judgment seat of Christ that we find in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, just a quick disclaimer. This isn't about standing before God and him deciding whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. This is talking about believers standing before God and giving an account for using the gift of grace, the gift of giving to them, stewarding everything that God has bestowed upon them. What's going to test that? Fire. And fire is going to test the work. 
What materials are we building our life upon? Gold, silver, and precious stones. What happens to those materials when they're put in the fire? They remain, they stay. They may become liquefied, but they're always there. What happens to wood, hay, or straw? The Corinthians would have known they burn up. Paul's writing to them and telling them, this isn't just about getting you into heaven. He's already told them their salvation secured. You're in Christ here. This is all about heaven now living and residing within you. And we think about it. Like just think about the launch of the Corinthian church. Eric did a great job a couple of weeks ago in, in Acts 18 when he talked about that. And you can just imagine Paul, weak, Weary, beaten, tired, and, and, he, and he limps into that synagogue and he stands before these opposers of the gospel, these opposers of, of Paul, and he just simply says to them that there is nothing more needed. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more essential, nothing more central than the message, hope, and life and security in a crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. All he had to say, and what do we know? That out of those words, the Holy Spirit indwelled one of those opposers. A synagogue ruler became a brother in Christ. Not because Paul was standing before them with the right microphone or the worship music was just right and the setting was perfect and the AC was on and the children's ministry was perfect. No, it's because the foundation was laid before them. That the power of the Holy Spirit now transformed this heart. And the Corinthian church has allowed the snares of the culture to infiltrate their, their purpose, their mission, their calling. And Paul's just reminding them, look, building your house upon anything instead of God's will, that it comes at a price. Coming to church like an infant, like a baby that I want, I want, I want, with no concern or thought about how it affects others will leave you with a great loss when that's tested, when it comes to the fire. I think about this all the time at our campus, and I think all, I know all of these campus pastors, we're talking about this constantly, that look, if Bethel Bible Church just makes you a better husband or a better wife, but not a more godly husband or a more godly wife, then there's a, there's a problem. If we make you a more disciplined person, but not a more godly person. That's a problem. That we're not just going to gather together and figure out how to become more high-functioning or add more capacity to our lives or become more strategic or more disciplined to do more good things. No. We're going to gather together and we're going to have had this foundation laid out before us every single moment of every single day, reminding us of what should control our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes. The foundation of Christ, because we will give account for how we're building his bride and how we're building his church. Those are the materials that you have been given. And finally, Paul is going to kind of end this particular section. He's going to talk about some application now. He's going to talk about these methods. And he starts in verse 16, and he just says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? For if anyone destroys God's temple and God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself if among you, if anyone among you 
thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may also become wise. Paul's talking about this idea that, look, you're not just some old building, that you're the dwelling place of God all throughout the Old Testament. Whenever you see temple, the dwelling place of God, and he's giving them this identity. This is who you are. And he uses the word you, and that actually is plural. He's talking to everyone here that when the church, the united church, joins together on the foundation of Christ, it is the very container in which God chooses to dwell on earth. And the call, the action, the method here is to be people who are marked by God's presence. It's Christ-grounded community builders that all individuals relate to one another as fellow Christ-grounded community builders. That this isn't about us, that this is all about him. And the beautiful thing and the plurality in this that he's talking about is you aren't alone in this. That it's not just up to you. That you have a helper. That you have a community. That you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's wanting to remind this fractured church this constantly, time and time again. He's going to continue in 19 and 20. He says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows his thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. See, the Corinthian hope was in personal elevation. The Corinthian hope was in the society around them and and, and, in the the very eloquent orators that they had within that culture. And, And Paul just very simply says, look, if you think that's what's going to make you wise, be careful because that wisdom is foolish in God's eyes. And his recommendation is let him become a fool so that he could become wise. That's the application here. What Paul's calling us to is exactly how we just led off communion, which, by the way, what a beautiful way to enter into communion together by just simply repenting. That the call here is simple. It's just to acknowledge the depravity of myself, the sin that I, that's the only thing I brought to the table here. And that this call that I now have in my life, what God has now restored and redeemed and brought back to new. It's repentance, it's confession. That's how we become wise. Let's become a fool. Let us acknowledge all this depravity. And he closes off here. So as you repent, 21 and 23, just says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are at your disposal. All are yours. And you were Christ, and Christ is God's. You recognize this gospel? We repent of this, and we rejoice that everything, that Christ has flipped everything upside down, that those snares those battles that we face every single day, all of those things that we constantly wedge between us and Christ that he's conquered, he's redeemed and he's restored. And he's used all of those now for your benefit. 
that he went to the cross, he died and buried, and he, and, he, and he rose from the grave. And when we place our faith and our trust in him, that it now changes my reality. That those snares, those battles, those troubles, and yes, they're real, and yes, they're hard, but he's redeemed them. And your life is now where the Spirit of God fills you and it leads you. And you now live life. You live moment by moment with God. And we're not just waiting till heaven, that actually heaven has come in the present now to indwell us, to live with us, to, to shape our thoughts and our actions and to give us the mind of Christ. The death isn't our greatest fear anymore. It's actually our reward. Because when you die... Life doesn't get worse. It gets better. And now we live every moment of our present reality in that hope because Christ has brought us into this family. He's invited us into this mission of his bride that he loved so much that he died for. And he said, hey, you're an ambassador. Your future is secure because one day you're going to spend all of eternity beholding the beauty and glory of Christ, that everything that you have here today has all been redeemed and restored and turned around and given back to you for your benefit. So go use it. What would it look like? What would it look like if Tyler, Texas, Henderson, Texas, White House, saw the bride of Christ living in the midst of all the battles and all the hardships and all the things that we endure daily with as stewards of grace and love, always rejoicing and praising our Savior. What would our world look like? You've been given all things. And so in closing, the, the test of maturity, it's, it's not our personal experience. It's really and ultimately about what we're building. Are we building his kingdom or ours? We reject the materials and the methods given to us by the world, and then our driving force becomes this gift of grace. When we, the church, adopt the values and the, and the practices of the culture, man, it's going to stifle, it's, it's going to limit the growth. We had to come to this realization in Henderson. We just finally had to realize, look, we didn't lose half our congregation. They just became the field. They just became the mission. We had to recognize that. We had to understand this purpose, this calling, that this gospel isn't something we just get to pack onto our lives and continue on our day, that it's in exchange for our lives. And we recognize that in every moment of every single day. We repent. Look, the reality and the truth is we're either building up or we're tearing down. And so which one are we doing? Are we stewards of this gift of grace that we have been given? And finally, we rejoice. We celebrate this. We get to do this. We get to be here. We rejoice because we now have the same power that defied all human logic, that defeated the one thing that you and I know is final, now empowering you as we together build this for his glory, not ours. 
gifts of God to his people, empowered by the Spirit upon salvation, cultivated and, and used for the greater good of the body of Christ. That's the church. Like we don't need a bunch of platform, public, big-time, stage, space-consuming people. We need everyone using the gifts of God. God has given the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the kingdom and the call to each and every one of us. A variety of gifts at a variety of levels, at a variety of places for the praise of His glorious grace. Look, I just want to leave you with this real quick. If we're bored, if we're bored in our Christian faith, I just, I love you enough to tell you then we're doing it all wrong. Because we've been invited right into the middle of the arena to be faithful, to be grateful, to rejoice that God has given us all things. Like, do we want to be mature? That we recognize, we repent, and we rejoice. And I assure you, just watch. Just watch. Even just try it this week. Just watch the correlation between gratitude and spiritual maturity. Like the more grateful you are for what's happening here and at Bethel Bible Church, the more you see, the more you hear, the more you understand all that you have been given and called to. Because look, mature churches require mature people. Let's pray. God, thank you again for truth. Thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we get to do this, that we get to be here. Father, I just I pray right now if there is anyone here in this room watching online that has not received and accepted and welcomed and embraced this truth into their life, that they will stop and do so now. And then we, your chosen, will walk alongside them and love them and encourage them and build them up and admonish them faithfully and point everything back to you. So thank you. Thank you for your bride. And my my prayer here is that we just continue to worship. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.